Welcome to Disclosure. I'm your host for today, Jean Boonstra. Well, Sean is away right now, and he's doing his Revelation Speaks Peace seminar, and we decided that we'd like to share what Revelation Speaks Peace is all about with you. And so today, we're going to hear Sean doing the same seminar in Minneapolis. I hope that you enjoy it. Welcome back to Revelation Speaks Peace. My name, Sean Boonstra. I am probably the only Boonstra in the city of Minneapolis tonight. Unless you've run into some others, I'm probably it. I am the speaker for a radio program known as The Voice of Prophecy, a program that was based in Los Angeles, California for 85 years until this past fall when we pulled it out of California and moved it to the mountain state of Colorado. And from there in the foothills of the Rockies, we now broadcast all over the globe from Southeast Asia to the Middle East, from Europe to South America, and of course, right here in the United States of America. And every so often, we even let it go up north of the 49th parallel into my home country of Canada. Now, if you are here for the very first time tonight, let me just take a few more minutes tonight again and explain how the seminar works. I, uh, I won't do that every night. We're going to move on to other things tomorrow night, but there are some people who have come for the first time tonight. Our subject, as you probably guessed from the advertising, is Bible prophecy. So our only textbook really is going to be the Bible. I do make reference to other texts. You know, I brought out Edward Gibbons last night out of curiosity's sake and so on. But really the textbook is the Bible, and that's because my method is just to examine what the Bible text actually says and let the Bible explain itself. And as many of you saw last night, the Bible does a remarkably good job of just spelling things out and explaining itself. And every night as we go through our subject, we're going to learn principles, we're going to see big themes that will help us understand how Bible prophecy is structured and help us as we move into deeper and broader topics night after night. So, for example, the one, one of the really simple principles that we walked away with last night was you have to read the whole thing. You, if you want to understand Daniel 2 and the dream Nebuchadnezzar has, then you read the whole chapter. And, and in essence, if you really want to understand Bible prophecy, you don't have much choice but to read the whole book. And people say, well, that's a big book. I know it's a big book, but it's well worth, those of you who have read it, is this well worth your time to read, yes or no? Oh yeah, it sure is. It has revolutionized my life. I wake up every day bubbling with joy and hope because of what I found in this book. You got to read the whole thing, and that's kind of one of the underlying lessons that we walked away with last night. And once you have all the principles that we're going to gather, we'll get some more tonight. Bible prophecy, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, they become as easy to understand as the rest of the Bible. Literally, you can read them as easily as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. All you need are the, is the all-important historical context and then a few more tools that help with understanding, and from that point on, it becomes easy. You can read Revelation as easily as you read anything else. And as you read it, what you discover is that prophecy isn't mysterious, it's not frightening, it's not something from the twilight zone. It actually makes really good sense. 
And once you see the big picture, it actually gives you a lot of hope. What you discover if you read it all and get the right tools is that God is not trying to destroy the human race. That is not His first intent. That is not what He's after. He's not trying to destroy the human race. God is trying to save it. Unfortunately, Hollywood always paints this horrible picture of God. They make these Bible movies, and they always paint God as arbitrary and severe and trying to kill everybody off. But if God was trying to kill everybody off, why would He give us the information we need to make it home? He loves us. The big picture is beautiful. And once we gather a lot of the information, we're going to step back and discover there's always a beautiful picture of hope in every prophecy. We saw that last night already. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, oh, I'm going to lose my empire. And then Cyrus loses his empire, the Persians do, and the Greeks, and the Romans, and Western Europe, and so on. But at the end of the day, the prophecy said that God sets up a kingdom that never needs replacing. It's the perfect environment for us to live in. It's always a picture of hope. Now, what we cover every night is going to build on the stuff that we covered the night before, and it's kind of progressive. The stuff we learned last night, and especially tonight, is going to factor into what we study tomorrow night, and so it becomes important to kind of follow along. And I know, as I mentioned last night, a lot of people are busy, but I can promise you, I mean, I'm busy too. I've got kids. My wife got one daughter who's singing somewhere tonight in Colorado. I've got another daughter in a nursing home. She's not in the nursing home. She's only 13, but she's helping in a nursing home somewhere else tonight, and they're in soccer, and they're in volleyball, and piano lessons, and that. So I get busy. So I understand how busy people are, but I promise you, if you clear your calendar for a few nights, most people around the world have told me that they walk out the door knowing more about prophecy in a few days than they learned in their entire life. I'm going to open up the taps and pour it all out there and give you more than you've ever had before. That's my aim. We are learning basic principles and key thematic concepts in prophecy so that at the end, like building a house, I talked about it last night, we put down a foundation, put up the studs, hang the windows and the doors, put on a roof and so on, and at the end we'll step back and look at the big picture, and that's the part I'm looking forward to. The big picture will blow you away. Let's talk for a moment about what we learned last night. Let's have an exam. Are you ready for your first exam? No, you didn't know there would be a pop quiz, did you? Here it comes. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and there's a statue, and the statue is made of different metals. The head is made of gold, the chest is made of silver, the belly and thighs are made of brass or bronze, depending on the translation you read. The legs are made of iron, the feet are made of iron and clay, if you remember that. What empire was represented by the head of gold? Who was it? the Babylonian Empire, or the Neo-Babylonian Empire, or Nebuchadnezzar's Empire. What empire was represented by the legs of iron? Which one was it? That was the iron monarchy of Rome, as Edward Gibbons described it. Next question, will the Western Roman Empire ever be reunited, yes or no? No, that was kind of the whole point, wasn't it? They shall not or will not adhere to one another. They will try and try and try for centuries to put it back together, and they will never succeed. Last question, who does set up the next universal kingdom? Who is it? It's God, and it happens when Jesus Christ returns. Amen. Now tonight, a planet in upheaval, we're going to look at a 2,000-year-old prophecy that is mind-numbing, and it becomes more interesting with every passing year. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I know that this is not like the other books on the shelf. You speak through this book. I know that because it changed my life. And I'd ask that you would make me fit to speak tonight. I'm not fit to represent you, except that you would bless me, and so I ask for that. Cover my sins with the blood of Christ. Enable me to represent you faithfully so that heaven is smiling when we're finished. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Bible, in the gospel according to Matthew, there is this story where Jesus is walking through the city of Jerusalem with his disciples, and they walk right past the temple. And it's the second temple, the one that was built after the Israelites came back from Babylonian captivity. Sometimes we call it Herod's temple. Herod didn't build it, but he did expand the grounds and beautify the grounds and so on. And so we often call it Herod's temple. But we could also call it Cyrus's temple because Cyrus liberated the Israelites and let them go home. Or we could call it Artaxerxes' temple because Artaxerxes helped fund rebuilding the temple. Or we could call it Nehemiah's temple because he was down there working on the walls of Jerusalem. But this is the second time they have built the temple. And the second temple is drop-dead gorgeous. It's one of the ancient wonders of the world. And as they walk by it, the disciples begin to swell with pride, understandably and they point to the temple and they brag just a little bit. Oh, look, Lord, this beautiful building is proof that God is with His people. And Jesus stops and He looks at the temple and then He says something that really bothers those disciples. And what Jesus says in Matthew 24 actually sets the stage for understanding the last few minutes of this world's history. Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus is looking at the temple and He says, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. This temple, guys, it's coming down. Not one stone left on top of Jesus was absolutely right because roughly 40 years later in A.D. 70, there's a group in Jerusalem known as the Zealots, and they are trying to overthrow Roman occupation. And they're protesting and they're causing trouble. They stage an uprising, and so Titus, the Roman general, is sent into Jerusalem to take command and squash the rebellion. And the zealots at one point, running from the Romans, go and hide in some of the rooms in the temple. And the soldiers are looking for them. And we don't know if it was deliberate or accidental, but at one point, a soldier sticks a lit torch through an opening into the temple and the temple is full of cedar wood that is centuries old and very dry, and the soldier starts a fire. Titus loved the building. The Romans loved to preserve culture where they could, and he tried to save it, but there was no use. The temple burned up, and hundreds of zealots died inside that temple. And a lot of the gold in the temple started to melt and run into the cracks between the rocks. And so partly out of rage at the zealots, and partly to get the gold out of the cracks, the Romans literally disassembled the temple, and they don't leave one stone left on top of another. 
Today in the city of Rome, about halfway between the Colosseum and the Arch of Constantine and the old Roman Senate in the ancient city of Rome, there's an archway. It's known as the Arch of Titus. It was erected to celebrate his victory in Jerusalem. And when you go through that arch and look up on the wall, you can still see this fresco, this carving of Roman soldiers carrying away the seven-branch candlestick that they took from the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus, 40 years in advance, was absolutely right. This temple's coming down, and that bothers the disciples. Well, how could that be? It's the temple. I guess they forgot it came down once before. And they come to Jesus with a question, and you read the question in verse 3. And as he, that's Jesus, sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, away, away from the crowd, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're reasoning to themselves, well, if the temple comes down, that's got to be the end of all things. It must mean Jesus is about to set up his kingdom. Lord, tell us, how will we know? What will be the signs? Give us a sign of your coming and the end of the age. We need to know. Now, I want you to listen very, very carefully to what Jesus says because it has bothered a lot of people for the last 2,000 years. Here it is now, starting in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no one deceives you. I want you to pay attention to that word, deceive. Because as we keep going through different prophecies found in the Bible, you're going to see that word cropping up a lot of times. The word deception, deceive, is there an awful lot. Jesus is saying there's going to be a lot of confusion before he comes back, a lot of bad thinking. And what that means is that you and I are really going to have to pay attention. We are going to have to be absolutely sure that we know what this book says. And you will not be able, in the end, to just take somebody's word for it. You're listening to Sean presenting Revelation Speaks Peace, which was recorded live in Minneapolis. Now, we're going to take a break, but we'll be back with much more. And as a reminder, you can always watch us at DisclosureRadio.com and listen on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure, and we will be right back. As you may know, The Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit vop.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's vop.com give. Welcome back to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Well, today we're bringing you Revelation Speaks Peace. Now, this is a Bible prophecy seminar that Sean is presenting right now in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what you're listening to is the same seminar recorded in Minneapolis a couple of years ago. You're going to have to know. Jesus said there's going to be deception. What kind of deception? Verse 5. For many. How many? Many. Oh, there's more of you here than that. I can see you all. You know I can see you, right? 
for how many? Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. This is going to be a big problem. Jesus said there will be a lot of people who will be deluded and fall for this kind of stuff. Many will come saying, I am the Christ, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines pestilences and earthquakes in various places. You want to know, guys, when my kingdom is getting close? Then pay attention to these kinds of signs. False Christs with their bad religion, war and famine and pestilence and earthquakes. And the skeptics read this. I've heard them. The skeptics read this and they say, what a lot of nonsense. We have always had those things. There have always been weird religious people. There have always been wars to fight. There's always been famine and pestilence and earthquake. These aren't signs of anything. But the skeptics didn't keep reading. They don't understand. They didn't read verse 8, where Jesus says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows is a very important word. Jesus did not choose that word by accident. In fact, if you don't understand why he uses that word, you cannot understand this prophecy at all. What does that word sorrows mean? The best way to explain it is to tell you something that happened in our family roughly 13 years ago. It was 1.30 in the afternoon. I'm at my office. I'm living in Toronto at the time, and my phone rings on my desk. I pick it up, and it's my wife. Hi, honey, she says. Your voice is always so nice. It was nicer than that. Hi, she says. I think I want to come to the office and see you this afternoon. I said, that's nice. I always love to see you, but it's 1.30 in the afternoon. I got like four or five more hours to go. Why are you coming to the office in the middle of the day? She said, because I've been in labor for the last hour. I said, well, maybe you should come to the office. Now, we only had one car in those days, or I would have gone to get her. I walked to work, and she drove down to the office, and, and she came upstairs, and I'll never forget it. There was a little yellow love seat by the, an ugly yellow love seat by the front door of my office, and she came in and very carefully sat down in, in, in the seat. And she said, now, I know what you're like. You're going to panic. You're going to panic. I know what you're like, Sean, and I, I just want you to know there's nothing to worry about. We have all the time in the world. The baby's not coming anytime soon. I just wanted to be early so we could be ready when it is time to go to... I said, we got to go to the hospital. She said, no, no, no. It's far too soon. The contractions are like 10 minutes apart. I said, 10 minutes apart, we got to go. She said, no. I said, we have to go. No, no, no. I'll feel like a fool. They'll send me home. You know, this isn't our first rodeo. She knows. She said, oh, she said, does that make sense in other languages? This is not our first baby. We didn't have rodeos. We had babies. I said, this is not our first. We know. I <laughs> she said, I know what you're like. And I don't want to go to the hospital. They're going to tell me I came too soon and sent me home, and I'll be embarrassed. She said, I know, though. Let's go for lunch. I said, I don't want to go for lunch. You think I'm going to eat? We're about to have a baby. I can't eat. She said, I just want to go for lunch. It'll be nice. We'll sit and talk. I said, I am not going to have this child in Arby's. It's not going to happen. She said, well, maybe we could go to Best Buy, right? We don't have Best Buy in Canada. It's actually a future shop. I converted it for American talk. And 
we have future shops. She said, let's go down to future shop and, and you can look at all of the electronic toys and I'll walk up and down the aisles and it'll feel good to walk up and down the aisles. I said, no, we are not having this baby in future shop. We have got to go. She said, I'm not going to the hospital. This baby's not coming. I said, that baby must be coming. Why are you here? She said, no, it's too soon. She said, I know. Let's drop off our oldest daughter at a friend's house now while we have time, and then we don't have to do it later when we have no time. I said, that sounds good. Let's do that. So we took our oldest daughter, Natalie. She was, oh, not quite three. We got to the friend's house. She had her little suitcase. She loved staying there. We rang the bell. She ran inside. They closed the door. We turn around to go down the steps, and my wife buckles over. Oh! I said, what's the matter? She said, what do you think is the matter? It's a contraction. I said, how far apart? She said, six minutes. I said, we got to go to the hospital. Too soon, she said. I said, go to the, get in the car. We drove down to the hospital. We pulled into the parking lot. And she said, let's just sit in the car and listen to the radio for a while. I said, I'm not going to sit here listening to the radio. I got out of the car. I walked around to the passenger side. I opened the door. And I, this is the only argument I've won in 22 years of marriage, the only one. I said, get out. And I pulled her out of the car, and I brought her inside. We put her in front of the admitting nurse. She's sitting at the desk, and this is what she's, she said. I have no idea why I'm here. <laughs> My crazy husband dragged me down here, and it's too soon. Nurse looked at her, she, she said, I, I think I have a pretty good idea why you're here today. And they put her in the monitoring room. They put the monitors on her tummy, and, and you hear the baby's heartbeat. Isn't that sweet? You hear the baby's heartbeat. And then she said, would you get out of here? You drive me crazy. Go down to the cafeteria, buy a sandwich. So I went down there. I hadn't eaten in a day and a half, and, and I bought a sandwich. It was, I hope there's no hospital cafeteria workers here, but this was the worst sandwich ever made. <laughs> Noah threw it out on the ark. It was so old. <laughs> and it was dry, and I ate it, and I ran upstairs, and, and I got upstairs to where she was supposed to be in the bed with her, and there's nobody there. And there's no doctor, there's no nurse, there's nobody. Oh, no. I looked down the hall, there must be 10 doors, and there's a lady having a baby behind every door. And I dropped out of pre-med when they showed the childbirth film. I passed out in the dark in class. And I, and I prayed a prayer, Lord, please don't let me open the wrong door. No. And I listened. I literally listened at each door. No. No. Maybe. <laughs> Closed one eye, I opened the door. Oh, it's her. Baby arrived within 10 minutes of me walking in there. The doctor almost didn't make it. Baby's not coming anytime soon. Those aren't signs. That stuff has always happened. They miss the word sorrows. In the Greek language, it's odin. It's contractions. It's birth pangs. And birth pangs happen quite a while before the baby actually comes. They just pick up speed, and they grow more intense as the moment comes. So I'm going to ask a question tonight. Of all these things Jesus told us to watch for, yes, they have happened all. I mean, Jesus knew there had been war and earthquake and famine and pestilence, but he called them contractions. Since that day, how big have the contractions become? I want you to think about it tonight. But just before we think about it, I want to give you a word of caution. The first word of caution is this. We are not going to throw darts at a calendar and pick a date for the second coming of Christ. Why? Because Jesus says you're not allowed to do that. Matthew 24 and verse 36. No man knows the day or hour. I've had people come to me and say, he said day or hour. He didn't say week or month. 
Yes, he did. Acts chapter 1, on his way back to heaven, the disciples said, Now tell us when you're going to establish your kingdom. He said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's in my Father's control. Now, why wouldn't God just give us an exact date? Right? Why not just tell you? It's going to come that day. Because he knows what you're like, that's why. You're going to wait to the last minute try and make things right with God. But that, that is not how you build a relationship. You see, with God, it's not a legal arrangement only. It's a relationship. You can't build those in the last minute of your life. It's like telling a girl, look, I'll marry you once I run out of other options. <laughs> it's what it's like. You can't build a relationship. Of course God doesn't tell us. It's about a relationship with Him. Now, we can't pick dates but we can get a sense of when it's soon. Jesus did say that. In verse 32, he actually says, these signs, these contractions are like a fig tree in the springtime. When you see the leaves come out, then you know that summer is almost here. That's how much we can know. Summer is almost here. So let's take a look at it. Jesus gives us three general categories of signs to look at. He gives us signs in the religious world. He gives us signs in the political world. And he gives us signs in the natural world, geological type signs. I want to start with the religious signs. Let's see what kinds of things Jesus told us to watch for. He said, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Jesus said, when you have a lot of people claiming to be Messiah, lots of them, it's a sign that we're getting close. He says it again a little bit later in verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive. There's that word again. Deceive, if possible, even the elect, God's people. Jesus said, be careful. There are going to be a lot of fakes just before the end. And even if they manage to pull off a miracle, even if they do stuff you can't explain, watch out. A miracle's no guarantee that God is behind it. False Christ works signs and wonders in the end. Even the evidence of your senses, the things you see and hear, might lead you astray. So do not allow yourself to be fooled by somebody's pop and dazzle and showmanship because false Christs will work wonders. It's what Jesus said. It's only one safe place to stand. It's on the Word of God and what it says. Jesus said, when there are lots of these people, then you know it's almost time. You know, over the centuries, there have always been a few. In the first century after Jesus, there were a few wingnuts that came out and said, ooh, I'm Jesus come back. Around the year 1000, there were two or three because there was some millennial fever around the year 1000. But have you paid attention to how it's gotten in our lifetime? Let's go back through my lifetime, the stuff that I remember. 1969, Charles Manson gets a group of people to murder Sharon Tate in a house just over the hill from where I used to live in Northridge, California. And what was Charles Manson trying to do? He was trying to get one group of people in Los Angeles to blame another group of people in Los Angeles for the murder and spark the Battle of Armageddon, at which point he would step in and become Messiah to the whole world. Now, what's unbelievable about Charlie Manson is he still has a following to this day. Forty years later, there are still people who think he's Jesus Christ. In fact, you probably heard it a couple of months ago. Some young girl wanted to marry this guy. That's one. 
Jim Jones follows quickly on the heels of it, People's Temple, San Francisco and Los Angeles. Eventually, he moves the whole cult to avoid scrutiny down to Jonestown, Guyana. And when the government, the CIA, started to inspect what was going on, he actually talks the whole cult into poisoning themselves. They drank Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. You younger folks, when you hear somebody saying, oh, that person drank the Kool-Aid, that's where that comes from, from that event in the 1970s. You know, I listened to Jim Jones's last sermon. The CIA has made it available so you can listen to it. It's bone chilling. He has hundreds of people in a room and they all say, yes, we'll drink the Kool-Aid. We will die for you. Except one woman who stands up and says, I've been reading my Bible and this doesn't seem right. Disclosure continues after this break with more from Sean at Revelation Speaks Peace. We've posted video from this event on our website. There you can also catch this show anytime. Just go to DisclosureRadio.com. I'm Jean Boonstra and you're listening to Disclosure. Retirement planning can be stressful, but it doesn't have to be. Call the friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy and learn about all your options based on your specific needs. Just give us a call at 1-800-348-5993. I'm Jean Boonstra, and this is Disclosure. Now, Sean is away right now presenting his Revelation Speaks Peace seminar to thousands of people in the Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina area. And while he's gone, we thought that you would like a taste of just what this seminar is like. And so let's continue with more from the same event that was recorded in Minneapolis. Another Messiah, false one, Sun Myung Moon in our generation, founder of the Unification Church. We call them the Moonies. You've probably seen their mass wedding ceremonies. An interesting side note, he also started the Washington Times newspaper. It's a great newspaper. It, it, there's nothing culty about the newspaper. It's just an interesting side note. I just found that out a few months ago. Sun Myung Moon claimed he's the second coming of Christ, that he came to this earth to finish Jesus' unfinished work. And he said, quote, I quote him, he, he means God, he is living in me. I am the incarnation of himself. Tens of thousands of followers. In the early 1990s, this guy by the name of Vernon Howell comes around. And of course, that's a very ordinary name, so he changes it to David Koresh. David after King David, Koresh after Cyrus, who conquered Babylon. His original name and his original tongue is Koresh. And he told his followers, I'm a sinful Christ. The first time Jesus came, he had to be sinless and pure, but now I've come to indulge in sin and experience that in behalf of all humanity. It's hard to believe that people fall for this stuff, but they do. Jesus said it'll be overwhelming deceptions for people in the last days. And you saw how that story ended in Waco, Texas. It ended in flames, and the tragedy is it didn't have to because the Bible has plenty of warning to keep you out of those places. Didn't have to happen, Jesus warned us. Just last year, Alan John Miller of Australia told the world he's Jesus, and his girlfriend, Mary Luck, said that she is Mary Magdalene. He explains it on his website. There's an audio recording. He says there's probably a million people who say they're Jesus. There are. Probably a million people who say they're Jesus. Most of them are in asylums. Actually, most of them are not. They're not. And he says, but one of us has to be Jesus. How do I know? Because I remember my life. You'd think nobody would follow it. But he is a following. People come every week to listen. 
One after the other, the Solar Temple in France, Benjamin Cream, the Mayatria, nerve gas attack in the Tokyo subway. So many people showed up in Jerusalem claiming to be Jesus in the year 2000 that they actually named a psychiatric disorder after it. They call it Jerusalem Syndrome. Right now in North America, there are more than 1,000 people who claim to be Jesus Christ and actually have a following. They're not in prison. They're not in asylums. There are more than 1,000 right now tonight. Watch out, said Jesus. When many come, you have many contractions. But you know, it's not just false Christ that the Bible warns us about. It also talks about religion that goes bad. Here's a prediction from the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Oh, is that ever true now? Verse 5, having a form of godliness. We're going to cover that whole passage on a coming night. But in verse 5, he says, these people will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They'll claim to be believers. They'll claim to be godly, but they won't live it, and they won't really believe it. Going through the motions. About 30 years ago, in our lifetime, Jeffrey Haddon was the editor of Christianity Today, and he put out a survey. I've been describing this one ever since it came out. It fascinates me. He surveyed 10,000 Christian pastors, 10,000. He got 7,500 of them to respond here in America. And he gave them four questions and asked them, do you agree with these statements? These are Christian pastors. He asked them, do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact? You, you would hope so, because Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Do you accept? Two out of five pastors said, no, I don't actually believe that happened. Two out of five. He asked them, do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Almost half of the pastors said, no, we don't believe that actually happened. Do you believe in an evil demon power today? When the Bible says there's a devil, do you believe that's true? Now, these are pastors they're asking. 45% said no. There's no path. There is no devil. Do you believe? This one breaks my heart. Do you believe? These are pastors. Do you believe that the scriptures are the inspired and inerrant word of God in faith, history, and secular matters? 85% said no. Not just the preachers, though. Easy to pick on them. Let's turn it around on the pews for a moment. 2009, Barna goes to the pews and interviews church-going Christians. Do you agree with these statements? God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who rules the world today. 78% praise the Lord said yes. But it's still one out of five almost that said no. Church-going. Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. 59% said that's true, there is no devil. Church-going Christians in America. Jesus sinned while living on this earth, Barna said. 39% of church-going Christians said it's true, Jesus sinned. But the, my Bible says Jesus is the sinless Son of God, the pure Lamb of God. Next one, the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power or presence, but is not a living entity, not a person of the Godhead. 58% of church-going Christians said that's true, there isn't really a Holy Spirit. Having a form of godliness, Paul said, but denying its power. I could go all night. I got surveys like you wouldn't believe, but I think we've kind of made the point that we need to move on because there are more contractions. Jesus mentioned stuff in the political world. You will hear of wars, he said, and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Now, we have always had war and the threat of warfare. What we're looking at are trends. Are the contractions bigger or stronger or closer than they used to be? We've always had war. It's always been nasty. But in the last few generations, we've just gotten very efficient. 
I mean, we used to have war. We would line up in two lines wearing bright red coats, and we would take turns shooting at each other. And if we ever got up close, you had to look someone in the eyes if you planned to kill them. But then in the 20th century, it suddenly changes. We have trench warfare, and then the airplane, and then the A-bomb, and now our new favorite toy, the drone, so that we can kill someone on the other side of our planet and then go out for dinner right afterwards. We killed more people in warfare as a human race in the 20th century than in all previous centuries put together, period. 203 million people dead. We didn't do that in all the other centuries combined. It's going on right now. The last I checked, every single member of the United Nations is involved in a dispute with another nation. Every single one. After the Soviet Union collapsed, we all told ourselves, oh, the world's about to become a more peaceful place, but now it's worse than it ever has been. China busy redrawing the map. Russia stirring up trouble in Crimea. ISIS knocking on Europe's door and trying to seize land all over the Middle East. We have rogue nations working on nuclear weapons. It was bad enough when we knew who had them. And the eight nations that did have them had enough to destroy the planet 50 times over in less than a day. But now there are people with an axe to grind, rogue nations that are developing nuclear programs. Folks, it has always been bad, but it's never been like this. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus gave us signs to watch for in the natural world, too. He said there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various or different places. Tonight, there are countless millions who face food shortages in sub-Saharan Africa. Right now, the number in sub-Saharan Africa that are starving is 28 million, nearly the entire population of my home country. I think of the Kalahari Bushmen, who we had contact with some years ago. Remember the, the film, The Gods Must Be Crazy? We made contact with those folks, and their kids were crawling out of their huts in the morning to lick the dew off the grass because it's the only moisture they would get all day. In this world, a child dies of starvation every six seconds. There are three million people in Somalia that would not live if they didn't have food aid. There are one million in Somalia living in tent cities. Right now in this world, there are more than a billion people that don't have their basic nutritional needs met, and four out of five children born in this world tonight are born into families that cannot afford to feed them. Even though you and I have more wealth than any generation in the history of this world, we have more people going hungry. And let me tell you tonight, that bothers God. When Jesus comes back, it says in Matthew 25, why didn't you feed me? And people will say, but when did we see you hungry? He said, because you saw all those hungry inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. One more sign. Jesus talked about pestilence. Think about the last few decades. Any strange new diseases? Huh? Any weird ones that we can't explain? Strep throat used to live in the back of your throat. And then about 20 years ago, it crawled out and became flesh-eating disease. Knew someone who lost a leg to that one. Spinal meningitis showing up in our schools again. We're having trouble treating it. The Black Plague recently showed up again in the streets of India. The Black Plague. Tuberculosis is becoming drug-resistant and making a comeback. SARS! We have such short memories. But do you remember that one? I was living in Toronto when that touched down. They would take our temperature before they let us into the airport to make sure we didn't have a fever. A brand new respiratory disease no one had ever seen before. The Ebola virus hiccuped twice and now 
now it's all ablaze in Africa and it's touched down here at home a couple of times. And we've got CRE. I can't even pronounce the whole name of that one. It's half Latin and I can't pronounce. CRE, the nightmare bacteria. It's a drug-resistant bacteria. Just killed a couple of people again in Los Angeles and infected 200 a couple of weeks ago. Hospital deaths due to infection from drug-resistant bacteria have increased sevenfold in the last 15 years. We thought we had it all beat with our antibiotics, and now we're struggling. Our food supply is going downhill. There's salmonella in the spinach. You hear it almost every month on the radio. Be careful with the E. coli in the meat and in the vegetables. Is there pestilence? You better believe it. And it's not just the disease. It's the constant droughts. Australia's in drought. California's in drought. Sao Paulo, Brazil is in drought. They don't know where we're going to get the water for the 10 million people that live in that area. There's flooding in other parts of the world. Fires like we've never had them in other parts of the world. We have crop diseases. We have honeybees dying off and wrecking numbers. We're wondering when it's going to affect food production. We have whales and dolphins washing up on the beach in spooky numbers down in South America and entire flocks of birds just dropping out of the sky here in North America. And I know what some of you are thinking. I felt pretty good when I came here tonight. <laughs> I got a little tickle in my throat. There's more. Earthquakes. This is interesting. People argue about earthquakes. You can slice the data any way you want. Right? You can go and get different data and apply different criteria, but what's interesting, if you get enough of it, a pattern begins to emerge. I did it a few years ago. About 25 years ago, I went to the University of Victoria, and, and I went to the geology section, seismology section of the library, huge library there, and I started to write them down. And, and I went for the big earthquakes, the ones that sort of knock your house down so everybody knows they happened. <laughs> Take out cities, make the records. And I found something interesting emerging in the data that I assembled. In the first 300 years after Christ, there was one such earthquake. The next 200 years, there were two. The next 300 years, there was one. The next 200 years, there were three, a little bit of a spike. And then you get about two per century. In the 1,000s, there were two. In the 1,100s, there were two. I think there were two in the 1200s. In the 1300s, we went back down to one. In the 1400s, there was one. In the 1500s, there was two. And then suddenly we get a little spike. In the 1600s, there were seven. In the 1700s, it almost doubled to 13. In the 1800s, it did double to 26. In the 1900s, it was about 138. I went and looked at USGS data just a few days ago, looked at the way they were cutting up the data, and they said, you know what, in the last decade, at the beginning of this last decade, we had about 200 a year, and now it's 800. And there's not just more, they're bigger. Remember the Asian tsunami, 9.3 in magnitude? First earthquake felt by every device on the planet. It was the longest earthquake in recorded history, 10 minutes long, and it left an 800-mile scar in the bottom of the ocean. On that day, we said, what an anomaly. That'll never happen again. Then it hit Haiti, and then the big one in Japan flooded Fukushima. Look, I know this stuff has always happened, but is it really business as usual? Let me ask you a question tonight. What time is it? I did an interesting experiment starting just a few years ago. I started taking the covers of major magazines, 
especially Time Magazine, Newsweek up in, uh, Newsweek here, McLean's up in Canada. I started laying them all side by side and they started to tell a remarkable story. If I had three hours tonight, I'd show you the whole story. I don't, so let me show you some of it. We'll continue with more after the break. Remember to catch us anytime at DisclosureRadio.com. I'm Jean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure. Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993. Welcome back to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Let's continue now with Sean at the Revelation Speaks Peace Bible Prophecy Seminar. The most logical starting place is the day we all think of when everything seemed to change, 2001, 9-11. In the West, everybody's attitude changed overnight. I remember where I was, do you? My wife was on the other side of the country. I couldn't believe it. I was late for work. I was shaving back when I shaved. (laughs) And my wife's on the other end of the country, and I hear out of my bathroom, TV's on. A small plane just hit the World Trade Center. I thought, that's weird. They don't fly small planes down there. And I went out, and like many of you, I saw the second one hit. Called my wife. I said, it just came here. It all changes now. It did, didn't it? As we're trying to grasp how horrific that was, that's when we find out we're going to war in Afghanistan. That war cost us a billion dollars U.S. every single month. And as we're trying to get our heads around that news, suddenly there are floods in Europe like they have never seen in the history of Europe. This is a picture of Budapest underwater, flooding in Europe. And as we're thinking, is there something up with the weather? That's when Enron collapses. That, our memories are so short, we virtually don't remember this one anymore. But that was the first big hiccup in our global economy, when we started to realize that a hiccup anywhere in the world starts to take us all down. And Time Magazine asked the question, how sticky will it get? They had no idea, because we were about to go to war in Iraq next to the tune of $1 billion a week. And as we're getting our heads around that war, suddenly that's when SARS touches down. We've got this new disease nobody knows how to deal with. Everybody walking around with masks on their face. I had doctor friends treating SARS patients, describing how awful that was up in the city of Toronto. And we're thinking, how many new diseases can we get? And that's when a heat wave hits Europe. They're no longer going underwater. Now people are dying of the heat in quick succession. Something is up. And on the heels of that, the power grid fails in the American Northeast. Everything from New York up to Buffalo plunges into the dark. Now, to be honest, in other parts of the world, they were laughing, saying, our power goes down all the time, you big babies. But you saw what happened. Just a night of darkness, and we lose control. That's when the tsunami hits in Southeast Asia, the one that left the 800-mile scar in the bottom of the ocean. 9.3 
10 minutes long. 2005 comes around, and we ran out of names for the hurricanes that year. They, they have a letter of the alphabet for every hurricane. There's Hurricane Albert and Hurricane Bert and Hurricane Charlie and Hurricane David. They ran out because they had 27 that year, and they started to ask the question, what's going on? Are we making these things worse? Why are there so many? We had no idea what was coming because that's when New Orleans went underwater with Hurricane Katrina. You saw that. Incredible. And we weren't ready for it. We're not ready for most things. Then 2008 comes, and the next hiccup's there, and the economy collapses, and we have the worst collapse since the Great Depression. My bank disappeared overnight. I used to bank with Washington Mutual. Go look them up. They don't exist anymore. And trust me, that was just a warm-up. How do I know? James chapter 5 predicts, Come now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you. You have heaped up treasure against the last days. And it won't do any good. 2008. We still haven't quite recovered from that all over the world. That's when the earthquake hits in Haiti. 150,000 reported dead. The Haitian government is telling us no, it was more like 300,000. Cyclone hits Burma on the heels of that, kills 140,000, puts half a million people in makeshift shelters. Deepwater Horizon begins dumping oil into the Gulf of Mexico, turning the Gulf of Mexico red. The biggest spill in marine history. Almost 5 million barrels dumped into the Gulf of Mexico, 210 million gallons. When you look at these one at a time, you don't think much of it. And we're kind of getting desensitized to this stuff, but pay attention. It is going down. Three years later, tarball still washing up on the beach. That's when Arab Spring kicks in. Starts December of 2010. Governments are overthrown all over the Middle East over the next three years in Tunisia, twice in Egypt, Libya, Yemen, civil uprisings in Bahrain and Syria, and it has never quite settled down. The whole Middle East is still a tinderbox tonight. And then it hits in Japan, the earthquake and tsunami. Suddenly, in March of 2011, a 9.0 earthquake off the coast of Japan, the fifth most powerful earthquake in history and the strongest in Japan's history. It pushed 25 million tons of debris into the streets of the city, caused $122 billion of damage, and killed 16,000 people in a heartbeat. Always been like this? Mass shootings. Right after 9-11, we had the Beltway Sniper kind of to kick off the party. July 20, 2012, James Holmes shoots up a theater in Aurora, then sits calmly waiting for the police to come and get him. Sandy Hook Elementary School. The Columbia Town Center next to my house when I was living on the East Coast. Clackamas Town Center in Portland, Oregon. The Navy Yards in Washington, D.C. Phoenix back in 2011. Anders Breivik kills more than 70 people in Norway. It's one after the other. Another dozen dead I heard the other day in Missouri here just a few days ago. 2013, bombs in pressure cookers at the Boston Marathon. It's one thing after the other. 2013, Calgary, Alberta, and parts of Colorado go underwater. Boulder's underwater. Calgary's underwater. I couldn't believe it. The Saddle Dome in Calgary is underwater. Last summer in 2014, they had the worst flooding in recorded history in Serbia, Bosnia, and Croatia. That's when we find out that the bees are dying all across this country, and we're worried about who's going to pollinate the crops. The Syrian civil war breaks out April of 2011, an attempt to overthrow the Ba'athist government. Somebody starts using chemical weapons on their own people, and by September of 2013, 120,000 people had died. 
Hurricane Sandy hits October 2012, $65 billion in damage. I lived through this one. I had a place in Maryland I was living, and we rode this thing out. There are still neighborhoods in New York without power. There are still neighborhoods that were burned to the ground in the disasters that happened afterwards. The Atlantic Monthly reported just weeks ago that by the time we came to 2014, 49% of Americans now agree that our weather is a sign that the world is ending. We're not laughing anymore. People used to laugh at this. 20 years ago, people used to laugh at this, and nobody's laughing anymore because something is going on. More killer tornadoes than we have ever seen happen all at once. Moore, Oklahoma, Joplin, Missouri. Super Typhoon Haiyan, November 13, pummels the Philippines, kills 2,500, puts 670,000 people out of their homes. The Ebola outbreak in recent months, and ISIS marching up to the coast of Libya, beheading Christians, and their next target, they say, is Rome. Do you know why? They're trying to spark a war with the West that they believe will become Armageddon, and in their minds, they believe that when Armageddon starts, Jesus will come and take their side. Never been like this. What time is it? There is one more sign. No, not another sign. <laughs> this one's good. Remember the pattern. God always lays out the bad news, the mess that we made. Then he delivers the good news. Jesus follows up with one more sign to watch for. Don't miss this one. Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, when Jesus said the gospel would go to the whole world, it seemed impossible. The whole world, the disciples didn't even know about some of the world, and they had to do the job on foot. They didn't know about the people living in South America or in Australia. They had no idea that those people happened. It seemed impossible. Possible, but I'm telling you that tonight it is absolutely happening. You know that in the year 1800, the Bible was available in less than 70 languages on this planet? 67, I believe, in the year 1800. Today, it's available in 2,233. Christianity tonight is growing 65% faster than the population is growing in Africa. It is growing four times faster than the population in South America, and it is growing by the hundreds of thousands in India. How do I know that? I saw it with my own eyes. I did Revelation Speaks Peace in a place that had no Christians just a few years ago, and 25,000 people came out, 16,000 of them became Christians. It's changing. It's changing. There are 85 million Christians in communist China, almost 100 now. We think, we know, because they keep bulldozing their houses. I'm telling you, it's not all bad news. All these, said Jesus, are the beginning of sorrows, birth pains. But you know what comes after the birth pains, don't you? Yeah. John 16, a woman, said Jesus, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. There's that word again. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, said Jesus, you now have sorrow. He knows. People say, where's God? He knows. 
And he didn't make the mess. We made the mess. And he sees it. And his promise and prophecy is not to destroy everything. He's not the one who made the mess. His promise is to set it right. Therefore, now you have sorrow. God knows you hurt. He saw what those people did to you. He knows what happened in your life. He knows you have sorrow. But, he says, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. The statue is crushed. The pieces blow away in the wind and Daniel said they'll never find those pieces back. Human systems of running this world are gone forever and the stone comes and fills the world. The kingdom of God is established forever and because it's forever, no one can take your joy from you. Worldly kingdoms crushed to dust, disappeared, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. You wouldn't want it any other way. I don't want human government again. I get less and less and less excited about elections. Doesn't matter. For thousands of years, it doesn't matter. Our world's a mess. Let me say this. If you're banking on people to solve your problems, if you're banking on governments to solve your problems, the last 2,000 years should tell you that doesn't work. The contractions, in spite of our best efforts, are only bigger and stronger than ever. But there is a solution. Not only does God open a kingdom, He throws a door wide open and invites us all in. And I can tell you there's not one of us that deserves it after the way we've lived. But because of the cross of Christ, He can open the door. I'm telling you, it's not about death and doom and destruction. Revelation speaks peace. If you want to place your faith in the coming kingdom of Christ, if you're tired of this old world, I invite you to just stand and have prayer with me. Father in heaven, we watch the world around us and it doesn't offer us a lot of hope. Some people are despondent. What a joy to find out that you see it, you know we have sorrow, and that you're about to solve it. Thank you for Christ. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've run out of time for today. You've been listening to Sean presenting a seminar series called Revelation Speaks Peace. Now, you can get your CD or DVD copy as well. We'll post a link on our website where you can also find show notes and other episodes. Find it all at DisclosureRadio.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jean Boonstra, and you've been listening to Disclosure. Disclosure.